Well, good morning. morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. As many of you know, this coming week we have the annual Southern Baptist Convention being held in Nashville this year. And thus far, over 16,000 messengers have been pre-registered to attend in a voting capacity, making this, I believe, the largest showing ever. And this high turnout this year was expected, not only because we didn't have a meeting in 2020 from COVID, but because 2019 left us with a past resolution and some public position statements that left many in the SBC deeply concerned about the direction and the drift of what is the largest denomination in the United States and her six associated seminaries. As you know, Baptist churches are all autonomous organizations that largely self-govern. But we join with others in our convention in doctrine and under the Baptist faith and message joyfully. And we have seen market shifts as we've seen market shifts in society and culture over the past few years. We see it in our schools, in our work environments, sports, politics. Sadly, our denomination has not been immune to the insidious and destructive effects of what's best called cultural Marxism. And it's made large inroads into the SBC and into her various organizations and committees. Now, this has been driven by many things, including feverish attempts to distance itself from very long, long ago uh, past support of slavery. Uh, The SBC has made some large missteps at a denominational level that has trickled down into the churches. Well, you may have heard the term critical race theory or CRT, intersectionality, etc. We will be doing a topical sermon on this in the coming months as it's very quickly becoming necessary for us to be informed as we're confronted with it almost daily in every area of our life, particularly if you are out in the workforce or in any educational institution. We're seeing society embracing with an increasing fervor inherently demonic and culturally corrosive worldviews that are not only anti-God, but are designed intentionally to break down society in order to rebuild it in an image they desire. Now, I won't give an exhaustive rendering of the dangers that we are in as a denomination, but we'll say that this convention is a crossroads for the SBC. We'll be voting for a new president of the SBC, and I'm thankful to say we have two strong candidates running, in my opinion, out of the four in nomination. Your pastor has studied and read the writings and the interviews of all candidates to varying levels. But we are indeed at a crossroads. That said, I'm cautiously optimistic. The SBC has a large force of conservatives that are passionate for the gospel, and they are committed to steering the SBC back to her gospel roots. We used to be known as the people of the book. And that is what we hope to get back to. The SBC is worth fighting for. And I pray that we make the right turn at this convention. Right now, apart from independent community and Bible churches, the SBC is the last remaining denomination that at least on paper still holds to the clear teachings of Scripture. And that's worth fighting for. And we will. Yet as Martin Luther said, ultimately it is better to be divided in truth than to be united in error. We pray that the convention will embrace truth and return to her roots and be bold in that stance. Well, the convention will be on the 15th and the 16th, so be praying for all that will attend, including your pastor. 
Well, last week we were thrust into a terrifying scene, weren't we? With the demoniac of the garrison, part one of the demonic meets divine. The disciples and Jesus just prior to this, they had encountered a massive storm, didn't they? They witnessed the hand of creator God rebuke the wind and bring the sea to instant glass. A double miracle. Remember that they stood terrified on the sea, not by the storm so much as being fearful of the one who was in the boat with them. Now only to be met by another terrifying scene as a madman possessed with a legion of demons comes barreling down the hill from the tombs overhead, seeing new victims tying up their boats down below. Yet upon seeing who it was, the demons in this man throw him down at the feet of Jesus. When asked their name, they replied that it was Legion. Well, this is not a cool name meant to sound scary, as we said last week. This was descriptive. This showed the crushing power and the number of demons that possessed this man. No chain or shackle could hold him. He was such a terror that he had made this way of travel for the people in the area even impassable. Yet we see these fallen angels cry out with fear and trembling when they see the face of the one who had all authority to cast them into the abyss and into the pit. And in great irony, in great irony, the merciless demons who show no mercy on this man, they cried out for mercy, didn't they? And the tormenting demons, they begged not to be tormented themselves. Well, we were reminded how the demonic forces, how evil acts itself acts in the tapestry of God's plan, didn't we? How the devil is God's devil, meaning God holds the leash and the slack line and the demons are subject to Jesus and they exist at his pleasure. A question was raised in the text as it was said last week that Jesus gave permission to the demons to go into the large herd of swine that was nearby. The accusation here is that Jesus somehow compromised with the demons or that Jesus exercised some sort of leniency, right? Why not take this opportunity to banish 6,000 demons in one shot? Why allow this evil to persist? We're reminded of the role evil plays, that Jesus could in an instant throw every devil into the pit with a single spoken word, but the time is not yet. They have a job to do. That's the integral, that is integral to the plan of the ages, to the redemption of the, le- of the elect, to sift us, as Satan sought to do with Peter. I had this very question in a recent encounter with a man that, that we were sharing the gospel with who asked me if, if God could just annihilate evil with a spoken word, then why doesn't he? That's a great question, but it has a fatal flaw. This statement assumes that you're not in that evil category. If God were to deal with evil completely and totally right now, being outside of Christ, you'd be turned to dust. So instead of bemoaning that God has not dealt with evil, praise God that he hasn't, that he is merciful and long suffering, not willing or desiring that any should perish. Evil plays an integral role. That's the reason these 6000 demons were not banished to the pit. They still had a job to do. And we saw these demons cast out of the man and into a massive herd of 2,000 swine running themselves over a cliff 
and into the water below. And by the way, as a point of geography to help us love and trust our Bibles more, this area today you can go and visit. And there are indeed steep cliffs right where this occurred. You can trust your Bibles. So we pick up today with the herd having just gone over the cliff. So let's jump in. Mark 5, 14 through 20. Mark 5, 14 through 20. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the countryside. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the demon-possessed man sitting down, clothed and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it recounted to them how this had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to plead with him to leave their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was pleading with him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to preach in the Decapolis with great what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was marveling. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this testimony recorded for us. Lord, had this man not been possessed, you could not have set him free. Demonstrating your love and your compassion on those who are held under the bonds of evil. Help us not only to see ourselves in these pages, but more importantly, to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, American missionary Richard Hillis was born in 1913, and he worked under the organization began by Hudson Taylor in China. And he records this story of a day when he was preaching in a Chinese village, and his sermon was suddenly interrupted by a piercing cry, and everybody rushed toward the scream, as we all would. And Richard's co-worker, Mr. Kong, whispered that an evil spirit had seized a man. Richard said that that's heathen superstition because he'd never encountered demon possession before. And just then a woman pushed through the crowd toward them and said, I beg you, help me, she cried. An evil spirit has again possessed the father of my children and is trying to kill him. Well, Mr. Kong, Hillis's co-laborer in ministry, he stepped over a filthy old dog that was lying in the doorway and he faced the madman. He recalled that the room was charged with a sense of evil. He said an evil spirit has possessed Farmer Ho. And Kong told the onlookers, our God, the nothing he cannot do one, how he described him, is more powerful than any spirit. And he can deliver this man. First, you must promise you will burn your idols and trust in Jesus, son of the supreme emperor. That was the verbiage he used for the Chinese to understand. And the people nodded. And Kong asked Richard, begin singing the hymn, There's Power in the Blood. And with great hesitation, Richard began to sing. And Kong began praying fervently. And suddenly the old dog in the doorway vaulted into the air, screeching, yelping, whirling in circles, snapping wildly at its tail. And Kong continued praying, and the dog abruptly dropped over 
dead. Instantly, Richard remembered Luke 8 and Mark 5. The demons of the gathering who invisibly flew into the herd of swine. As Kong finished praying, Farmer Ho seemed quiet and relaxed, and soon he was strong enough to burn his idols. And at his baptism shortly afterward, he testified, I was possessed by an evil spirit who boasted he had already killed five people and was going to kill me. But in Jesus, I am free. Well, it's not a story you'll find as a lead in a Baptist church very often, but that's to our detriment. We're not to be sidetracked. We're not to overemphasize or even interact with the demonic, but we dare not ignore it or think it an unseemly topic. The unseen, as we've talked about before, is in fact a greater reality than what we see around us. But this type of flashy demonic activity, as in Mark 5, it is a rare occurrence. It's very rare. Satan prefers to come as an angel of light. He prefers to occupy a church pew over the most devilish activity you could imagine. We saw almost no demonic activity in the Old Testament, remember. And we saw very little in the New Testament until the one with all authority comes on the scene. Jesus walked into the dark room of Israel that looked so clean in their tidy, legalistic Judaism, and he threw open the drapes and the dust flew everywhere. Word would have gotten out amongst the demonic of the area. There was one they knew of, one whom they truly needed to fear, and they knew who he was, and they knew that he had come. Well, this story of the demoniac of the gathering is a deliverance of cosmic proportion. It is the largest single movement of the demonic, the largest interaction of the divine with the demonic, since God cast out one-third of the angels out of heaven for their rebellion. And we need to capture this order of consequence in our mind. First was the fall of the very fall of Satan and the angels themselves, and next is this man possessed by legion. We can't overemphasize this enough because of what we're about to see in our text today. To fully capture the miracle, the gravity of what we will see today, we have to have this pecking order in our minds. So with that, let's begin with verse 14. Mark 5, verse 14. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and the countryside. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. Well, we need to take our splicing knife here to get to the meat of this verse, but there's a lot to see. First, we see the herdsmen. Right. And indeed, this would be herdsmen because they were running a massive and as we will see, a citywide enterprise here. Two thousand pigs is a lot of pigs for this time. This was communal. This was big business. And upon seeing what had just happened to their herd, it says that they ran away. The word here is fugo. This is where we get our word fugitive from meaning they were running to escape what they perceived as danger. They were in full running fear mode. So when it says that they ran away, I don't want you to visualize people going to run and get their friends to come check out something cool that happened. This was fear. They ran away as if their lives depended on it. Hugo. And reported it in the city and in the countryside. Well, what does that mean? We'll rotate the diamond quickly to Matthew 8.34. It gives us more color. No need to turn there. I'll read it for you. Matthew 8.34 says, And behold, the whole city 
came out to meet Jesus. All right, the whole city came and they had questions, didn't they? Number one, why are all our communal pigs floating in the sea down there? And two, who did it? Well, a quick point of apologetic here. Anyone who's ever engaged people who are sometimes uh, questioning things or, or, or maybe even hostile toward the faith, you'll know that they often will take an opening to attack the gospel or to discredit the testimony. Or they just honestly feel in their heart that they want to understand this. Well, criticism has been leveled in this account that Jesus, in fact, sinned by destroying the livelihood of this town. This is a prevalent position from from some folks. So just to address this quickly, a few things to note. One, all of these pigs were marked for slaughter. That was the purpose. That's why they were there. And the swine running down and being drowned in the sea did not destroy them. In fact, I was reading one theologian that said the coolness of the water would have actually had a preserving effect on the flesh while the townspeople fished them out of the water. So did Jesus wrong this town by stealing their livelihood? Not hardly. At most, he merely sped up their slaughter schedule from what they had wished. So be assured, these town, those town people were down in the sea immediately pulling out these floating carcasses. They were not lost. Jesus did not steal these pigs from this community. But indeed, the whole town had come out to see the scene. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. Well, imagine being told the tale. Everyone knew who this crazy man was, and certainly everyone knew about their livelihood in feeding Roman garrisons, which is what they were doing with these pigs. When Matthew tells us that the whole town came out, we may not be using a lot of hyperbole here or exaggeration. Verse 15, Mark 5:15, And they came to Jesus and observed the demon-possessed man. Stop there. To simply observe something in the English that loses the intent here. The word here is theoreo. This is where we get our word theater from. This conveys a, a sense of staring. They're captured. They're intensely focused. What on earth am I looking at here? And this isn't hard for some of us to imagine. If we knew someone in this state, they all knew this man. He terrorized their region. He altered their travel routes. He was so violent. And he likely and may have even killed people. He was vicious. He's now, how is he now in our text? He is clothed and in his right mind. Clothed. We say he's clothed because he was probably naked in the tombs. That's why Mark tells us this. In his right mind. Meaning he's in complete control of his faculties. But when Jesus sets someone free, he goes all the way. He does not set them free from demonic possession only to allow them to continue on their way to hell. Rotate the diamond to Luke. His account of this, this amazing scene, he says that Jesus, quote, made him well. Now the word here is sozo, which means rescued, rescued. This is meant to tell us that this man was not just set free from demonic possession. He was made whole. He was made whole. He was in his full and his right mind. Jesus not only did battle on his behalf against Legion, he then gave him the words of life. He gave him living water. Jesus rescued this man. 
Sozo. And they came to Jesus and observed the demon-possessed man sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. Well, this is amazing news. And how does the town respond? And they became frightened. What on earth are they afraid of? He's sitting there clothed in his right mind. What has them terrified? We can throw out a hint. What were the disciples terrified of? Forget the storm. What were they really terrified of? You know, Jesus. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now these townspeople and they became frightened. Frightened of whom? Jesus. The demoniac is scary. Yeah, that guy is crazy. What about the one who has control and authority over the demoniac? He must be more powerful and more vicious even than this beast of a man. Because if you want to plunder a man's house, you must first bind the strong man. And he's clearly been bound. Who is this man? Who is this man? The word used here is not one for a curious fear or, or an anxiousness. This was terror. Terror. One theologian writes, quote, their fear of the man was gone. And in its place was the terrifying dread that accompanies a recognition of being in the presence of God. Close quote. Verse 16 gives us even more color here. Mark 5, 16. And those who had seen it recounted to them how this had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. Well, here we have something interesting happening that's easy to miss. Who's doing the describing here? Who's doing the describing here? Those who had seen it recounted. Again, our poor English does us no favors. One benefit of expository preaching is to give us an appreciation for why God did not write our Bibles in English. Thank heavens he didn't. We would miss so much. But here the English says, those who had seen it recounted. Who are those? Who are those and why does Lanesville 2021 care? The answer here is there is in the recounting of the story. The word here is digeomai. Digeomai. This means an in-depth narration, a full telling, a detailed account of all the intricacies to set something out in complete detail. Well, who witnessed this that would be able to not only describe what happened, but also give a complete narration of intimate background, given a full explanation of what happened. The herdsmen? Well, they could provide an overview. This happened and this happened. But they could they give digeomai? So who are those who had seen it? Who are those? The disciples. The disciples. Why does that matter? Why does it matter who told them? Because the disciples are not just filling in blanks. They're testifying to what the Lord had done in great detail. Is it possible that they also shared what just happened out on the sea just a few hours before to bolster that explanation? Well, we aren't told, but it's certainly in the realm of possibility. I probably would if I was a disciple wanting to explain something amazing and miraculous that had just happened. I would go, yeah, and, and guess what else just happened, right? Guess what else just happened? They're confronted with testimony. Here's what happened. Here's why and here's who. Digeomai. 
This makes their response to the event, the townspeople's response to this event, far more significant, as we'll see in verse 17. Mark 5, 17. And they began to plead with him to leave their region. What a fascinating response. This is fascinating. Behold the power of unbelief. Behold the power and sway of sin over the minds of those who had hardened their hearts. The King James Version says, and they began to pray him, leave them. Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon quipped, quote, that is a prayer the Lord is often willing to answer. End quote. And what a frightful and dreadful prayer it is. A miracle sat before these people, clothed in his right mind. Nothing could be misconstrued. No other explanation could be possible. But darkness hates the light. People love the darkness because their deeds are evil. And they pled with him to leave their region. Take your light. It hurts our eyes. Take your testimony. It haunts our conscience. Take them and leave. Mark is making exceedingly, abundantly clear that no miracle can change a human heart. None. The most fantastic miracle could be done of the most fantastic nature you could imagine, and they still would not believe. In fact, they may even get angry. They'll cry out for you to take this miracle worker away. Such is the depravity of the human heart. We must grasp this. It helps make so much more sense of the world around us. Why some are saved and some are not. Jesus, why don't you just come? Visit my parent, my child, my friend. Come sit down right at their bed and say, I'm Jesus, believe in me. Why can't you just do that, Lord? Then they would have to believe. Not a chance. Not a chance. The most fantastic miracle could be before, performed before their eyes, and they would not believe, but the Lord give them sight. Everywhere, Jesus let the glory of heaven radiate in what he did and said. All the people ever did throughout the entire gospel is beg him to leave or plot to kill him for it. That's it. It's no different in Acts with the apostles. Same thing. And they began to plead with him to leave their region. We reject you and we reject the testimony of your disciples. You've inconvenienced us with this disruption. We had a great setup. So take your light and take your testimony. This intrusion is unwelcome. We pray thee, leave our region. Well, the next line of scripture would seem nondescript to most readers, but it's one of the saddest you can read. Verse 18. And as he was getting into the boat, stop there. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Jesus says, I'll answer that prayer. I pray thee, leave my region. Okay. You've rejected the light amongst you. And those people will stand on the shoreline that day, 10 times more accountable than when their day began. Their hearts are now 10 times harder than when the day began. And every time we reject the word, our hearts callous over just one more layer. Jesus getting in the boat, having given them a glimpse of the very redemption of heaven that is to come, could be to their eternal damnation. Well, why can't they see? 
and they cannot see because they will not see. The son of disobedience, the sin of disobedience disables you from being able to obey because you would not see. Now you cannot see. It's kind of like a dad telling his child that he just poured fresh concrete out there. So stay out the driveway. And later he comes home and says, son, come to me, come to me. I have good things for you. But the son had disobeyed. Both of his legs are now stuck in the concrete. So he cannot obey because he would not obey. Jesus answered their prayer, as it were. Leave us. But praise the Lord. Look at this. Look at the second part of verse 18. And the man who had been demon possessed was pleading with him that he might accompany him. Sozo, he's been rescued. He's been born again. He's been restored. He's been made new. He's been set free. This is the response to true conversion. Pleading with him that he might accompany him. Have you pled with Jesus that you might accompany him? Have you pled with him? Does this resemble your conversion? Reality, as this man had known it, had just collapsed upon itself. Everything he thought he knew was turned to dust. This was the real, real. I bear the scars on my arms where I would spend hours trying to amputate my own limbs and take my own life with stones. I sat and listened to the musings and the scheming of 6,000 demons. I resided with the dead. I lived in the tombs. Evil itself was my pillow every night that I laid upon. And now that shadow is gone. The reality of life and beauty are standing before me and I must serve him. I would rather die than not serve him. He that has been forgiven much loves much. You desire to follow the one who saved you. One reason I love to minister in the prisons. He that has been forgiven and saved for much. He loves much. He is zealous for much. He knows where he came from. But glory be to God who casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. The past of this demoniac had been cast into the sea of forgetfulness. But does he still bear the scars? You bet. Every night he would lay down and I imagine his hands would run over his arms, feeling the reminders of what he was saved from. God lets scars remain for a reason. Don't despise them. The former demoniac of the garrison had a way he wanted to serve his Lord and his Redeemer. He wanted to go with him. But Jesus is going to deploy him right into the belly of the beast. Verse 19. Verse 19. And he did not let him. But he said to them, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Go home. Go is in the imperative, meaning this is a command. It's the same imperative Jesus gave to Legion when he told them to go. This man knows he has a new master. And Jesus does not eschew that label. He doesn't step back from that label. He says, you're right. I am your master. Now go. Go where? The hardest place you can go. Go home. Go home to your people. This also translates friends. 
This tells us that this man was not always in this state. He had a life. He had a family. He had friends. But this was a dark area. This was a place of spiritual desolation, a place where Legion begged to be able to stay. That's how dark this place was. In Galilee, Jesus told many he healed to what? Be quiet. (laughs) Jesus didn't want to be mobbed. But here, let her rip. There's no danger here. Let her rip. Go, tell them. Go home to your people. This man now has to reintegrate into society. Everyone knew him. Everyone knew what he was. They knew his reputation. They knew what a dangerous man he was. I'm sure every door was either slammed in his face or they ran in fear. And Jesus tells this man to give a report. That means tell them. Open your mouth and proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Yes, they will judge you based on what you were. And yes, they will be afraid of you. But open your mouth and give the report. What great things. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. What does it take to proclaim to the world that God had mercy on you? What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's not grace. Let's not confuse the two. But where's grace here? He only gives mercy. We usually see these two together, don't we? Mercy and grace. How about we do see grace? First part of the verse spelled out. Report to them what? What great things the Lord has done for you. Grace is being given something you do not deserve. Report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. That's grace. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Here Jesus plainly says mercy, but he spells out grace. This man has been given the full complement of the Lord's goodness. Mercy and grace. And how rich are these words to this man now? What do mercy and grace mean to this man? More than most of us could ever begin to imagine. He who has been forgiven much loves much. He proclaims much. He preaches much. And so he does. Verse 20. Verse 20. And he went away and began to preach in the Decapolis. What great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was marveling. You don't know how bad I wanted to title part two maniac turned missionary. I did. This is the first missionary preacher sent out by Jesus in Mark. And ironically, it's a Gentile sent to Gentiles. His first act after absorbing the mercy and the grace lavished upon him is to obey. That's his first act to obey. If you love me, you will obey my commands. The only evidence you will ever have on this side of eternity that your faith is a saving faith is a life of obedience rooted in and driven by your love for the Savior and testified to by the Holy Spirit that you are a child of God. That's the fruit. The Apostle John speaks clearly for us, writing 
And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar. Not much subtlety with John, is it? And is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Well, what happens when you obey? What happens? You can change a city. You can change a nation. Saints, get ready to watch the power of obedience here. If this doesn't make your spirit shout, I can't help you. Turn with me quickly, just a few pages in your Bible, over to the end of Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 31. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 31. And he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. Stop. Where is this? Decapolis. Where's Decapolis? You're in it right now in Mark chapter 5. This is where the redeemed former demoniac of the Gadarene was sent to. These are the ones who just cried out to Jesus in Mark chapter 5, leave our region. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And they pleaded with him to lay his hand on him. What on earth? Where on earth is this coming from? They wanted nothing to do with Jesus two chapters ago. This was the area where the demons wanted to stay. Decapolis was wicked. Verse 33. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven with a sigh, he said, Ephaphata, that is, be opened. And his ears were open and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, huh, not to tell anyone. But the more he was ordering them, the more they widely proclaimed, continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished. We who told you to get out of our region are now saying He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Saints, this is the first time in my pastorate writing a sermon that I had to stop and could write no more. Overcome by the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Look what he just did through this man and his testimony. This area was wicked. They wanted nothing to do with God. And now they say, look, he has done all things well. I often say that term, he's done all things well. I never put together who it was that was saying it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have done all things well. Lord, we cannot see your full plan. 
Lord, if we were to have seen the demoniac wandering in the tombs and yelling and screaming, Lord, would we have ever thought? Could we have ever seen? But eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor can the heart imagine the things that you have in place and in store for those who love you. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take this and burn this word into our heart. Lord, the application is deep and wide, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would wield it to each person individually as they apply this to their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.